This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. Welcome to Hearsay from Law Week Colorado. I'm Julia Carty. Be advised that this story contains audio of a shooting that listeners may find disturbing. Gun! Gun! Drop the gun! Let me see your hands! Drop the gun! Hey! Get your hands in the air! Don't reach for that gun! Do not touch the gun! Alright, somebody else, glove up. Somebody get some rubber gloves on. I got you. Okay. Hold them, hold them. I got him. Police officers almost never face criminal charges when they fatally shoot someone. According to one body of research by a Bowling Green State University criminologist, officers fatally shoot about 1,000 people in the U.S. each year. Since 2005, as the morning call in Pennsylvania reported, 90 officers total have been charged with murder or manslaughter as of 2018. 32 have been convicted. Because public scrutiny often focuses on whether an officer is charged, those numbers might suggest a victim's family doesn't have much of an avenue for justice. But it's still possible to use the civil law system to examine the police department's policies. Because in some cases, when a department's policies for using deadly force justifies an officer's decision, the policies themselves are flawed in how they define reasonable use of force. Every traffic stop is a dangerous situation because you don't you just pulled over a guy, you don't know what he did five minutes before that. I don't believe that there needs to be a, a statist- an acceptable statistical probability that folks who interact with law enforcement, some will just die um, through no fault of their own. You know, police officers are involved with danger every single day, and I didn't want to give the impression that I was trying to minimize that by saying, you know, all uh, police officers that are involved in shootings need to have behavioral health counseling. I talked with attorneys and lawmakers about the use of settlements, legislation, and consent decrees in the wake of officer-involved shootings. Those approaches can result in systemic policy changes that a jury verdict against an officer or a department can't achieve. Civil rights law firm Rathod Mohammedbai has taken on some of Colorado's most high-profile cases of people killed by officers. They've resulted in settlement agreements without lawsuits. Firm partner Qusair Mohammedbai said a problem with using litigation to address officer-involved shootings is it takes a punishing emotional toll on everyone involved. Settlements can also carry terms aimed at changing policies that justified a shooting. Terms can be whatever the parties agree to, where by contrast, a jury can only put out a number for damages. I've always maintained that when there is an officer-involved shooting that results in death, especially if there's a potential racial component that our jury system is a very inadequate or incomplete vessel to to resolve these disputes. Uh, Unfortunately, although judges have some uh, ability to have equitable changes, a jury is limited to a dollar figure. And a dollar figure is a verdict, as a judgment to sort of symbolize what a person's life is worth is, is just an incredibly awkward and incomplete and just awful way to resolve these matters. Our civil justice system is, is just brutal on litigants. 
the discovery process and the litigation process for everybody is very hard. And it triggers these emotions, it brings people back, it hyper-scrutinizes every decision, every relationship, and it can be abused by attorneys. The system allows for that. And so in that sense, in litigation, nobody wins, especially when there's this much pain, especially from the plaintiff's side. Mohammed Bai represented the families of Jessica Hernandez and Nichelles Carter-Vincent, who were shot by officers in Denver and Aurora. In the settlement after Hernandez's death in 2015, the Denver Police Department changed its policy on shooting into moving vehicles. Hernandez, who was 17, had been driving a stolen car with several other teenagers. Police said they feared she would hit them. In the wake of her death, the city released information that seemed to paint Hernandez as a troubled person with a criminal record. Through the settlement, the city also made a policy against releasing the criminal histories of people shot by police. As part of the settlement after Carter Vincent's death, the Aurora Police Department agreed to expand the use of body-worn cameras. It also increased oversight roles for the Internal Affairs Bureau and the Independent Review Board. Carter Vincent was killed after police responded to a domestic assault report and he cut off an ankle monitor he'd been wearing at the time. Officers confronted him a few days later and shot him when he appeared to reach for something in his pocket. He was unarmed. New at 11, an Aurora police officer has just been cleared in a deadly shooting. Officer Paul Giroth fired the shot that killed Nishalis Carter Vincent. The terms of the settlement agreement include a monetary payment of $2.6 million to the family of Mr. Carter Vincent and certain non-economic terms that confirm the city's and the Aurora Police Department's commitment to community policing, self-evaluation, transparency, and tactical improvements. The agreements did include some money paid to Carter and Hernandez's families, but Mohammed Bai said the more important goal was to make changes aimed at preventing similar incidents from happening again. I've never been involved in an officer-involved shooting case or even a standard excessive force type case where there isn't a sincere desire of everyone involved to look at what happened and see what can be done better in the future. That And that's always been, I have found, a common goal. I, I've never run into an officer that was happy about having to take somebody else's life, justified or not. And so when you have that common goal, that can be a bridge to try to find a, a resolution that works for everyone. Mohammed Bai said agreements for policy changes recognize a fatal shooting doesn't automatically mean the officers involved did something wrong. But there are still the complicated questions of how to determine when a policy an officer followed warrants changing and figuring out the best way to implement the change. I talked with Mohammed Bai about another case his firm has taken on for the family of 73-year-old Richard Black. Anybody else in the building, make yourself known! Who else is inside? I talked with Mohammed Bai about another case his firm has taken on for the family of 73-year-old Richard Black. He was killed by Aurora police last July. An intruder had broken into Black's house and attacked his young grandson, 
Black shot and killed the intruder as officers arrived to the house, and he still had the gun in his hand when officers saw him. But according to the district attorney report, they did not know at that point Black lived in the house or that he had just shot the intruder. He did not respond to their commands to drop his gun. Black continued walking toward the officers and raised a flashlight in their direction. It was then that Officer Drew Limbaugh opened fire on Black. Fewer than ten seconds passed between when they ordered him to drop his gun and when Limbaugh started shooting. Black died in the hospital. Have you been able to tell, was, was he facing the officers when they were telling him to drop the gun, or was he in any, was he positioned in a way that he would have been able to even see them or have any indication that they were trying to communicate with him? I mean, it's, of course, it's impossible to know what, what, he, what he saw and did not see. There was a moment before he was shot that he raised a flashlight towards the officers inside of the house, and the officers were at the threshold approaching the front door that had been uh, knocked down, and they were in relative darkness as compared to the light inside the home. So experience tells me that when that happens, it, it sometimes can impair your ability to make out details when you are in the light looking out into the darkness of a house and the fact that he raised a flashlight probably also indicated that he may have been having trouble seeing who was uh, telling him to put a uh, to drop the gun that was in his hand. Mohammed Bai said the way the incident unfolded has implications for training law enforcement officers. Black's time in the military had left him essentially deaf, and the police officers didn't attempt to get an explicit indication he could hear them yelling for him to drop his gun. Some of the issues that are associated with Mr. Black's death in, in law enforcement are the idea that law enforcement oftentimes relies upon and exclusively relies upon verbal commands and they will as happened here resort to extreme deadly force if somebody does not comply quickly with a verbal command and so baked into that are just a lot of issues that i see there's one that there's a presumption that the listener, the recipient of the verbal command, can understand English. We know that to be certainly not true of everyone in Denver and Aurora. Second, there's a presumption that the individual who's receiving these commands can hear. There's a lot of issues with that, and there's been quite a bit of studies that have shown that those members of our community that have hearing impairments and other types of sensory impairments are oftentimes subjected to law enforcement violence at a disproportionate level. And the third is that somebody possesses the cognitive abilities to process a verbal command in the time that is comfortable for law enforcement. You know, we have issues of mental health issues, cognitive disorders, and also this idea that the community and the citizenry can react appropriately when they have a firearm pointed at them. It's a tremendously scary thing and certainly not something that happens every day, not even close. So how people react in that situation, they can be overcome by fear and things like that. So those types of issues are all associated with the shooting of Mr. Black. There have been other civilian deaths at the hands of law enforcement where evidence suggested the person may not have been able to fully understand the officer's commands. As a result, a few state legislatures are starting to take action. In 2014, Maryland became the first state to mandate disability awareness training for law enforcement officers. 
and Arizona Senator John Kavanaugh introduced a bill in the State House this year to require a training program for officers on communication deficits when they interact with people who have conditions such as hearing loss and developmental disabilities. Christy Lopez, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law, talked about two incidents in Maryland that resulted in fatalities at the hands of sheriff's deputies. Lopez used to work in the Department of Justice's Special Litigation Section in the Civil Rights Division. She led investigations of police departments, including Ferguson, Missouri, following Michael Brown's death by Officer Darren Wilson. She had a big role in drafting the consent decree that came out of that incident. In 2007, Gerald Gray died after being tased twice by a sheriff's deputy when they were called to break up a fight. An official report said Gray had limited hearing. He was not wearing his hearing aid and may not have heard the deputy's order to lie on the ground. Gerald Gray was deaf in one ear and may not have heard the officer's commands, and there's no indication that the officer understood that or took that into account when deploying his taser numerous times. You know, for example, if you have someone who doesn't speak English or if you have someone who's deaf, perhaps even if you communicate to them um, in a format that they can understand, they may still be resistant. You don't know that for sure, but you do know for certain that if you're not communicating with them in a way they can understand, you're depriving them of any ability to cooperate. And in 2013, Ethan Saylor suffered a fractured larynx and died of asphyxia after a confrontation with off-duty sheriff's deputies. He had Down syndrome. Sailor had stayed in a movie theater to watch a film he had just seen without paying again. The deputies had approached him to get him to leave. The Maryland legislature passed the measure requiring disability awareness training following Sailor's death. Last year, Sailor's family received a nearly $2 million settlement. It seems the officers should have understood, should have recognized that this individual had cognitive disabilities, and I believe he had Down syndrome, and should have recognized that because of those cognitive disabilities, Ethan was not going to be able to respond in the way that the officers wanted him to. And notwithstanding that fact, that didn't mean that Ethan was a greater threat to the officers. Lopez said police training on forced de-escalation tactics can go a long way toward addressing assumptions officers make in the heat of a moment. It specifically creates the opportunity to find out more information about this individual and to assess, you know, the dynamics and the surrounding a little better to determine whether you might have more options. And it's not just about de-escalation creates not just time, but also space. That's the idea behind it. And so then you are sort of removing yourself by creating space. You're, you're removing yourself, hopefully, from the, the highest risk of danger. I had trouble finding anyone currently in law enforcement who would talk to me for this story. But I got a sense of the mindset law enforcement officers have when they're going into an uncertain situation from State Senator John Cook. He spent 30 years in law enforcement, including 12 as Weld County's sheriff. I asked him about the idea of training officers to assume someone can't understand a verbal command until they get some kind of confirmation that the person does. In theory, yes. I think that, um, I mean, that's very reasonable. But when you have to make a split-second decision like that, sometimes it's almost impossible to do. I know a little bit about that, that case. I'm not involved in it, but I know, just know what I hear from the reports. I mean, a huge tragedy. I mean, it was, it was tragic for everybody, the agency, the, the police officer, the family. Sometimes, though, when you, somebody has a gun, you know, and it looks like, who knows, they might be pointing at you, they might use it. I mean, you have to rely on your training. I'm not sure that's the appropriate time to say, I wonder if this person's hard of hearing, because you don't know. 
I mean, it's the first time, first encounter. And you don't want to put any doubt in the officer's mind either, and because if you do, then you could have a dead officer. So I think in theory, but when you're talking about just a few seconds and you have to decide if it's a life or death situation, and it would be very difficult for me to, or for any officer to say, well, you know, I don't know this guy, I've never met him before, I don't know if he's hard of hearing or not, but he's got a gun and he's not dropping it after I give him verbal commands. I think that's almost nearly impossible for, for an officer to be uh, put in that position. Cook does believe incidents sometimes warrant changes in police training. He recalled a case in Commerce City in which police beat, tased, and pepper sprayed a man they pulled over because they thought he was driving drunk. The man at first eluded their attempts to pull him over. As it turned out, the man had actually gone into diabetic shock while driving. But something Cook said later indicates just how much the idea of focusing on de-escalation flips traditional police training on its head. It speaks to the complexity of unraveling deep-seated ways of thinking. Every traffic stop is a dangerous situation because you don't you just pulled over a guy, you don't know what he did five minutes before that. Did he just kill his wife? Did he just rob a bank? Did he you know do whatever? He you, you pull him over and he doesn't want to get arrested. He might have a warrant, and so every traffic stop is dangerous. And you can't can't be afraid to go up to the door because you you think oh this guy might have a gun. I'm gonna I could get killed. If officers approach every uncertain situation with the mindset it could turn dangerous, then it doesn't seem surprising that they escalate. But trying to change policing based on such a sweeping generalization probably wouldn't be very effective. So that brings us back to approaches that get at incremental change, like settlement agreements and legislation. So sweeping policing reform could use the definition of reasonable use of force as a starting point. But State Senator Rhonda Fields is one who recognizes the difficulty of tackling those types of questions. So a bill she sponsored this year with Cook takes a different approach by addressing the trauma officers themselves experience after they're involved in a shooting. Senate Bill 91 requires law enforcement departments in Colorado to come up with policies to make sure officers have the support services they need after they're involved in a shooting. Fields took care that her approach to the bill didn't build in an assumption she is a lawmaker and was better than officers how to do their jobs. You know, police officers are involved with danger every single day, and I didn't want to give the impression that I was trying to minimize that by saying, you know, all uh, police officers that are involved in shootings need to have behavioral health counseling. So I really just had a stakeholders meeting and just asked them, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to have a protocol. I want to have some standards in place that after there's a fatality regarding a police officer involved shooting, what should these steps be? And what I found out across the state is that we have varying approaches to how departments are handling these shootings. And it's just based on the size of the department. For example, Denver, Adams County, uh, Aurora, Jefferson County, those departments have much more resources than, let's say, Telluride or uh, Eagle County. And so their process might look different. And so what I wanted to do is to make sure that every agency had their own protocol in place where they can pick and choose what works best for their population. So that's how we got there. Fields originally planned to have a provision in the bill that required officers to take a particular period of leave after a shooting, but she said she got a lot of pushback about that type of blanket requirement. Small law enforcement departments may not have the resources to cover an officer being away for, say, 30 days. It's also possible officers would be mentally ready to return sooner. So the one-size-fits-all approach wasn't getting buy-in. 
Richard Black's wife and two of his daughters testified at the first committee hearing for the measure, Senate Bill 91. I asked Fields if the bill came as a direct result of Black's death. The officer who shot Black, Drew Limbaugh, had just returned from leave days before after fatally shooting someone else. I have been wanting to address legislation as it relates to police-involved shooting after the Trayvon Martin, after the Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland. So way back, maybe about four years ago, there seemed to have been a trend with police officers shooting. We all saw them on TV, and at the end of the day, there were no consequences for the police officer. They were acquitted. And the reason they were acquitted was most of the time because they felt like it was a justifiable shoot because the police officer felt like they were threatened. So that's kind of the common theme behind all these shootings is the police officer already has a built-in defense and that it was a justifiable shooting. And so how do you really judge that? How do you second judge someone's um, decision to shoot? Maybe not to kill, but just to shoot their gun. And it's hard. And so what I was trying to do in this bill, the Senate Bill 91, is take a different approach. This is not my first bill dealing with police officer shooting, but say, okay, should there be some protocols, a core standard that would be involved to make sure that these elements are met before they go back in public uh, service to protect and serve? Can we check to verify that their mental health, their behavioral health, is good enough to serve the public. Cook knows a thing or two about stepping back to examine whether a piece of legislation aimed at policing reform will actually be useful. He's established himself as an important voice of support to bring in on bills affecting law enforcement. When Cook first came to the Senate in 2015, he got pulled into a thicket of bills introduced with Michael Brown's death in Ferguson fresh on lawmakers' minds. Since I did 30 years in law enforcement, I was hit up by quite a few people and said, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Well, there were about 11 bills coming over from the House that they called restoring trust in the community bills. And so I looked at them, and I called them anti-law enforcement bills. I mean, they were, they were pretty bad. You know, I kept trying to tell them, look, this is not Ferguson. We don't have that issue here. And it's two separate you know, entities and agencies. Cook said he eventually convinced Democrats to abandon around seven of the original bills. And he met with law enforcement groups in the process to figure out how to make the remaining measures useful. And then I got with a couple of other Republican senators here, and we decided to meet with the Chiefs Association, the head of the Chief Association, the head of the uh, Sheriff's Association, and the DA's Association. And we said, look, we have to do something. You know, we just can't say, well, we're going to fight and kill everything because that's not beneficial to law enforcement. And so we worked on three bills to improve law enforcement efficiencies. And one was on regarding officer-involved shootings. We had to have a shoot team where you had to have other agencies involved in, in investigating that, that shooting. Because a lot of times people say, well, Denver's investigating their own shooting, or whatever agency, it doesn't have to be Denver, but Aurora, Lakewood, whatever. They're investigating their own shooting, so is there a cover-up? Are they looking, missing things? So the bill said oh, let, we have to have at least one outside agency to come in and put together a shoot team. Now, some of the members didn't like it. Denver Police Department didn't like it because they thought, you know, hey, that's interference in our agency. We can handle it. We, you know, we're on the up and up, and I believe they are, but it's about building trust with the community. So that was one of the bills. The other one had to do with um, integrity of, of officers and, and their backgrounds and make sure if you're a gypsy cop, you can't leave one agency and go to another without a background check and, and opening up your records. 
A gypsy cop is an officer who gets in trouble in one agency and is able to just move to another jurisdiction. Cook explained policies can enable gypsy cops when departments work out agreements with officers where the officer resigns instead of getting fired. The department keeps the officer's personnel records and internal affairs records sealed, so the incident that triggered the resignation won't show up in a background check. So that bill basically said you can't do that. You can't seal IA records. You have to have them available to prevent the gypsy cops from like somebody doing something really bad in one jurisdiction and then going to apply for another, and then you're just hiring somebody else's problem. There was one other bill, but it was four years ago, so I can't remember. But we had we got with the chiefs and the sheriffs, and we held this stakeholder meeting, and then I went back to you know the House Democrats and said, look, this is the this is what we want to do. These are the bills that I have proposed, and they um, they thought it was great. They said, oh, this is, you know, this, this is wonderful. It gets kind of what we want to do without having all those other bills. So to be clear, choosing not to litigate a use-of-force incident isn't about letting law enforcement off the hook. It's more about recognizing that departments want to do what's best for the communities they're tasked with protecting and about changing established policies that don't serve that purpose. In this case, but then certainly in other cases, the police will say, you know, things to the effect of, in a profession like this, just sometimes just sad things just happen, you know, with, with the inherent dangers, you know, things to, things to that effect. Do you think it's possible to draw a clear line where you can stop saying that, where you can say that and where you can't? I don't believe that there needs to be a a statistic, an acceptable statistical probability that folks who interact with law enforcement, some will just die um, through no fault of their own. And that just be an acceptable consequence of having law enforcement in our community. I, I don't, I don't think we would tolerate that in almost any industry at all. We don't just accept that a certain amount of planes are going to fall out of the sky just because. I'm Julia Carty for Hearsay. This episode was produced by Hannah Blotter with story editing by Tony Flesser. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud 